1: Hello, this is the How To Academy podcast, with me, Vas Christodoulou, and some of the world's most exciting thinkers. A few weeks ago, we were joined by Noam Chomsky, a man whose contributions to linguistics, cognitive science, philosophy, and political activism have made him one of the world's most famous public intellectuals. He was interviewed by author and journalist Fatima Bhutto.
2: I'll just get into it because I have to see the mic at some point to the audience. And I wanna start with obviously the pandemic and the fact that pandemics come, or at least they tend to coincide with large scale societal failure, or at least that's an idea that goes back as far as the Bible. But even before the pandemic, we had plenty of global horrors, namely a brutal and unrelenting inequality In the United States, 1% of the population owns 40% of the wealth, 15% of the world's wealth is concentrated in the European Union and the United States. And just thinking of the pandemic alone, while so many people were struggling to survive, to live, to make ends meet, one new billionaire was created every 17 hours. At the same time, more or less, The number of people living in extreme poverty rose by 100 million. Death from hunger tops even the alarming coronavirus death rates. And so I want to ask you to start by speaking to us about how this kind of rampant inequality has brought us to where we are today, and how it has impacted the global handling of the pandemic.
0: I don't want to romanticize earlier years. There were plenty of flaws during the period that uh, economists call regimented capitalism or embedded liberalism. Basically, the New Deal program, the social democratic programs initiated pretty much by the uh, US New Deal in the 1930s. Remember, in the 1930s, The world was facing very serious problems, not like today, but very serious. And there were several ways out. Uh, Continental Europe moved towards fascism. Uh, The United States moved towards social democracy. In the post-war period that was picked up by Europe, developed a range of social democratic programs Uh, that uh, lasted pretty much through into the 1970s. There was plenty of resistance by the business world, uh, but uh, was never able to overcome the enormous support for this basic framework of programs. So take, say, Dwight Eisenhower, the last authentic conservative in U.S. politics. Uh, for him, the New Deal was untouchable. Said straight out, any political figure who doesn't accept the New Deal programs just doesn't belong in our system. Anyone who challenges in any way the right of working people to organize in unions simply is not part of our political system. That's the 1950s. That's a time when the Republicans in the United States were still an authentic political party. By the 1970s, for various reasons, the counterattack by the business world was succeeding. Uh, They were pushing back against the mildly social democratic programs of the earlier era. Uh, By the late 1970s, I'm now talking about the United States, but similar things elsewhere. By the late 1970s, with President Carter, who was very anti-labor Democrat, Uh, the dikes started breaking. 1978, uh, the head of the United Auto Workers, Doug Fraser, pulled out of a labor management conference that Carter was running with a bitter statement. I can't only paraphrase, but basically he said uh, that business has launched a one-sided class war against the poor, the working class, and much of the middle class, and they want to essentially destroy the programs that supported the general population, and he's not going to be part of it. It was a rather belated recognition. Business is always fighting a class war in the United States where they highly conscious business class, it's intense, goes far back. The United States has a very violent labor history as compared with Europe, for example. But by 1978, Fraser recognized it too late. Then came Reagan, Thatcher, and the one-sided class war was just open, no effort to conceal it. Uh, Reagan and Thatcher's first moves, sensible moves, were to eliminate the possibility of defense by attacking labor movements, under seriously undermining the labor movement, with in fact what were generally regarded then as completely illegal tactics like uh, scabs, permanent replacement workers. Uh, Reagan opened the door on all sorts of other options for the rich to gorge. Uh, there was an economic policy, it was pretty explicit. The economic guru of the administration, Milton Friedman, had uh, his doctrine became open and prominent. It was very explicit. Corporations have no responsibility other than self-enrichment, which of course means enrichment of the management and the CEO. Well, um, Reagan's program announced in his inaugural lecture is Government is the problem, not the solution. Put this together doesn't take a genius to predict the future. If decisions are no longer in the hands of government, which is at least partially responsive to the population, and shifted to private hands, unaccountable private concentrations of power, and their sole responsibility is self-enrichment, does it take a genius to figure out what's going to happen? No. In fact, it happened in the United States to a significant extent in various ways in England, in continental Europe. uh, The worst victims are the global south, of course. uh, Really vicious structural adjustment programs with extensive conditionalities that led to lost decades, a huge rise in poverty. Uh, In the United States, we actually have some measures of it carefully studied. So, Rand Corporation, very respectable corporation, came out a couple months ago with an effort to analyze what they call the transfer of wealth, what we should call robbery, the transfer of wealth from the lower 90% of the population, working class, middle class, from them to the very top, If you look closely, it's really mostly a fraction of 1%. Now, their estimate over the 40 years of the neoliberal assault is close to $50 trillion, which is a significant underestimate. They don't take into account the other devices that the one-sided class war opened up, like tax havens, shell companies. There's talk. If you look at the neoliberalism mantra, definition. It says we're committed to markets. It's total nonsense. There's no commitment to markets. What came out of it is what some economists call a bailout economy. Deregulate, first of all, allow the financial sector to grow extraordinarily enormously. Deregulate it. What do you expect? Regular crashes. Each one worse than the last. There weren't. didn't happen during the regimented capitalism period. Banks were controlled. Uh, It's not just banks, but uh, those are the striking ones as the financial system, which is mostly predatory, uh, grew enormously. So you have a bailout economy, started under Reagan, got worse every time. When there's a crash, the friendly taxpayers called in to compensate the perpetrators. You see how it really works. If you want to know about class war under Obama, the less extreme case, which is always the more interesting. So when Obama came, he came in in the wake of the uh, housing crash and subsequent financial crisis. Congress had passed legislation uh, to bail out the economy. There were two parts to it. One part was bail out the perpetrators. The banks who had made the predatory loans, huge insurance companies like AIG, which had subsidized it, all knowing what they were doing, knew it was total force. They're not imbeciles. But then they could read the statistics about uh, housing prices going out of sight with crazy loans. But they were making money, so it was fine. So the first part is bail them out. second part, which is also in the legislation, is provide some help for the victims, people who lost their homes, foreclosures, out in the streets, no jobs. Well, anyone who understands class war will be able to predict quickly what happened. Okay, One part of it was implemented. The other part was ignored. That so outraged the inspector general of the Treasury Department that he wrote a very angry book about it. Okay, so we have the book. That's the way it works. It worked. It's same thing with the huge bailout during the pandemic. It goes to the rich. They are fighting a vicious class war. And uh, if, if it's one-sided, after they've undermined the defense, plenty of responsibility along the way, then you have these outcomes. And to see how extreme it is, It's really interesting to look at small details. So take a look at Congress right now. What's being debated is a reconciliation bill. One element of it, the Republican organization, I hate to call them a party these days, they've abandoned parliamentary politics long ago. But the Republican organization is 100% rock solid against anything that might help the general population, they've established what they call red lines, things you can't go beyond. One of them is you cannot raise taxes on the very rich. You cannot touch the one legislative achievement under Trump. The tax bill, which was a giveaway to the super rich in the corporate sector at the expense of everyone else, can't, of course, punched a huge hole in the deficit. But when Republicans make a deficit, it's not a problem. It's only when a deficit is, uh, has components which benefit the rest of the population, then it's a huge problem. Uh, that can't be touched. Furthermore, you cannot fund the Internal Revenue Service. One of the elements has been very significantly defunded, which means you can't look for tax cheats. That was not true in the pre-Reagan period, they did look, uh, but that was one of the things that was taken away. The tax cheats aren't the poor, they aren't the working class. Their income goes straight to the IRS and uh, forms, it all goes immediately to the IRS, they have no choices. It's for the very rich. They have batteries of lawyers who can figure out tricky ways to evade taxes. The IRS is not allowed to look into it, not just to deal with it, not even to look into it. And This extends. One of the main, uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no society, either she was lying or she was stupid. She knew perfectly well that there is a rich society, complex rich society for the wealthy and the corporate sector all kinds of organizations. In the United States, the Chamber of Commerce, Business Roundtable, American Legislative Exchange Council, which ALEC corporate funded, which, uh, which rams laws through state legislatures, which is pretty easy. They're easy to buy, uh, business friendly. And it's very interesting. And the same in England, of course, in other words. So rich society for the rich and the powerful. Nothing for the rest. They're cast out and to survive somehow, the ravages of the market, not the rich. They're carefully protected. Uh, uh, This is one-sided class war. So what does ALEC do? Well, a lot of things, but the, the small ones are the revealing ones. There's a huge amount of wage theft in the United States, billions of dollars a year. Uh, Businesses just refusing to pay wages, refuse to pay overtime, uh, uh, extra wages, all sorts of things. Well, it's all illegal, but it doesn't matter when there's a criminal state because it doesn't look into it. Mm -hmm. So one of Alex's main uh, efforts at the state level is to get state legislatures to pass laws making it illegal to punish wage theft, but furthermore, make it illegal to investigate it, can't leave a single stone unturned in vicious class war. Mm -hmm. Well, the neoliberal period has a formal definition, you can find it on the OED, but it has an actual definition, and the actual definition is one-sided class war. Well, you have that going on for 40 years, it has Mm -hmm. an impact. Part of the impact is the anger, resentment, contempt for democratic institutions, beginnings of collapse of the social order, lots of things.
2: I want to, I mean, there's so much to ask you, but I, I want to move to another side of the criminal state. Just in the 21st century alone, America has launched two wars against Muslim countries, against Iraq and Afghanistan, to say nothing about the drone bombing um, and military action against Pakistan, Syria, Libya, and others. And it's pretty clear that a huge reason that they went into those wars was to feed their enormous military-industrial complex. And it's also quite clear that those wars were not in American interests in the long term. They were actually against American long-term interests. But the military industrial system has gone out of control. It's almost cannibalizing itself to the point that, you know, $2 trillion or whatever it was, wasn't enough to save America from having to beat a hasty retreat from Afghanistan this summer. The Taliban took Kabul in all of six days. What can the US do about its rogue military industrial complex now? I mean, is it even possible to scale it back, to reel it back?
0: Well, when Eisenhower used the term military-industrial complex, that's where it comes from, I think the original phrase that he used was military-industrial-congressional complex. Uh, Congressional was taken out of the refined speech. Uh, What he didn't say, although I'm sure he knew, is that that's the high-tech advanced economy. It's not the military-industrial complex. It's the advanced economy, most of which was developed at public expense in the 1950s. Personally, I happen to be right at the heart of it. I was a junior faculty member at MIT, main research university in the world. Uh, Lots of government money pouring in, mostly through the Pentagon. The reason for that is, if you want to extract money from Congress, the easiest way to do it is say, say defense, then Congress passes it. But it was really consciously developing the high-tech economy, what you and I are now using, computers, internet, satellites, microelectronics, and so on. It was all being developed for the purpose of creating an advanced economy, Okay, the funnel was the Pentagon, because that funnel's open. Congress funds it no matter what. In fact, this was such an open scandal that by 1969, there was an amendment called the Mansfield Amendment. Senator Mansfield thought this is out of hand. And the amendment said that uh, Pentagon funding has to be for some military purpose. It was understood that None of, it was, of course, every, everything is for a military purpose, from anthropology to zoology, the military will try to use it. But the funding was build the advanced economy. Fundamentally, our econ- this is not much of an exaggeration to say that the economy is a public subsidy, private profit economy. Taxpayer funding leads to research, development the risky, creative parts of the work. There's some corporate involvement, but usually secondary. And later, when something's marketable, hand it over to private power for profit and marketing and adaptation to the market. Same is true with drugs, incidentally. Now, take the Moderna vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the basic work was mostly done in government labs or research universities. Actually, like MIT, where... I spent almost all my life, you could see it right around you. The only people who didn't seem to see it were the economics department. Now just take a look at the buildings surrounding the campus. You know, during the 50s and 60s, it was electronics firms feeding off the research that was that, that includes IBM and other, you know, Raytheon and so on. And many of them, Some of them are military oriented, some of them just... That's the the economy, Uh, feeding off the research uh, ideas, creativity, and the public institutions. Take a walk around the campus now. What do you see? Pfizer, Novartis. Uh, What's happened is the economy has been shifting towards a biology-based economy. So therefore, if you want to rip off the public, what you do is surround research universities with uh, corporations that can take part in the research that's going on and the creativity that's being done in the public sector and benefit from it. It's an exaggeration, but not much of one. It's the basic character of the economy. Well, going back to the military-industrial complex, let's name it properly, high-tech industry, advanced industry. The expenditures for the uh, Afghan war, trillions of dollars, break it down, not much of it went to Afghanistan. Most of it stays in the country to those who are benefiting from it. So is it a failure? Well, depends where you look. With regard to the Iraq, I think there's a big difference between Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. The Afghanistan war was a real, from an imperial point of view, a real error from the start. Both wars, I should say, are criminal wars. And Britain is deeply implicated in the criminality, particularly under Blair. Uh, But uh, they were both criminal enterprises, but different. Simply from the point of view of imperial strategy, the invasion of Iraq made good sense. Iraq is one of the world's major oil producers, very cheap oil, stick a hole in the ground, oil gushes out, you don't have to... To deep drilling. It's right in the middle of the main energy sector of the world, Middle East oil. So, taking over Iraq from an imperial point of view made quite good sense. And it was openly stated at the time, openly advertised, that this was the first step. They were just going on to, there were another seven countries in the um, headlights to go after. So, that's Standard imperial policy, perfectly sensible, didn't work out. They caused an utter catastrophe, don't have to run through it all over the region, devastation, didn't harm the United States, devastating for the region, but they didn't achieve the imperial goals. They were in fact stated clearly by the end, by 2007, when it was clear that the Iraq invasion was failing the, this was then the, still the Bush administration, George W. Bush, November 2007 came out with a what's called a SOFA agreement, a status of forces agreement with the government of Iraq. The proposal was that the United States should have permanent military bases in Iraq and that U.S. corporations, meaning energy corporations, should have preferential access to the Iraqi market. This was taken so seriously that a couple months later, when the budget was passed, Bush added what are called signing statements saying, These are the provisions of the budget that I'm not going to pay attention to. And it included all the ones I mentioned. Well, the US imposed government of Iraq refused to accept it. But those were the imperial goals. Perfectly understandable. Not achieved, but it's common in the history of imperialism. Now, what about Afghanistan? No purpose whatsoever. No strategic purpose. No interest in Afghanistan. No interest in Al Qaeda. That was made perfectly clear. The Taliban offered to surrender shortly after the U.S. invaded. The attitude of the U.S. government was explicit We do not negotiate surrenders. That would, of course, turn over. Bin Laden, Taliban, but we're not interested. We don't negotiate surrenders. What are we? That was actually described very well by the leading anti Taliban Afghan resistance leader, Abdul Haq, highly revered in Afghanistan. He was interviewed in the Guardian, in fact, shortly after the US invasion by Anatoly a distinguished Central Asian scholar, who asked Al-Haq, why do you think the Americans invaded? It's about two weeks after the invasion. He said, they're going to kill a lot of Afghans. They're going to undermine our quite promising efforts to overthrow the Taliban from within. But they don't care. They want to show their muscle and intimidate everyone. It's about right. It's pretty much what Donald Rumsfeld said shortly after, we don't negotiate surrenders. We want to show our muscle and intimidate everyone. That makes perfect sense from the point of view of the mafia, which is basically international society. you got to intimidate everyone and show your muscle. We see it happening right now. It goes way back to the British, to the French, far back as you go.
1: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala marquee tv really is the most accessible way into culture i've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover you can try it for three months for just 99p yep three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before
2: you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I mean, besides being um, an imperial failure, Afghanistan also, or the fall of Kabul and the fall of Afghanistan, will also suggest a decline in American power in the sense that this week Russia has hosted Afghanistan talks, the first high-level international engagement with the Taliban since they came to power, which America chose not to participate in. And it would also signal a change in direction. They've been pivoting away from Pakistan, being quite um, petulant, let's say, You know, President Biden hasn't engaged with the Pakistani premier, Secretary of State Blinken has made it very clear that Pakistan is not on his first roster of calls uh, when dealing with Afghanistan. And they seem to be following through with something that began in earnest with Trump, which is a, a pivot to India. But I want to ask you about America pivoting, not just away from Pakistan and to India, but specifically pivoting towards... A head of state, Narendra Modi, who is by all accounts an out-and-out fascist, who oversaw the massacre of thousands of Muslims when he was the chief minister of Gujarat, and was a man so reviled that before he became prime minister of India, no Western country would grant him even a visit visa. Can you speak to America's shift in the region away from Pakistan and towards India now?
0: that has to do with the general so-called pivot to Asia, which is aimed at China. Mm-hmm. China is supposed to pose a tremendous threat to the United States. Mm-hmm. That's what you read everywhere, this huge mm-hmm. China threat. Now, what is the China threat? How is China threatening the United States? China is very repressive internally. Is that a threat to the United States? Is this repression in other countries a threat to anybody? No, it's not. In fact, the China threat was described very accurately by a well-known international statesman, Paul Keating, former Prime Minister of Australia. He said, "The China threat is China's existence, China's existence as a part of the world that does not accept American orders. And it's not intimidated. They don't back down. That's a threat. The United States cannot accept that. And if you understand international affairs, you can see why. International affairs, as I mentioned, is rather similar to the mafia. The godfather has to show his muscle, intimidate everyone, make sure they follow. The godfather wants people like Tony Blair who follow along without raising any questions. No matter how crazy it is. That's what the Godfather wants. Well, Europe is pretty much like that. So take the Iran sanctions. Europe is strongly opposed to them, tries to get around them, to block them. Same with the Cuba sanctions. In fact, not just Europe, the entire world is opposed to them. The last vote in the General Assembly is 184 to 2. United States and Israel, Israel's has to follow the United States' its client state. So basically unanimous. Everyone follows, obeys the sanctions. Why? The Godfather is powerful. You don't fool around with him. You get in his way, he can cause you great damage. One thing the Godfather can do is throw you out of the international financial system, which is run from New York, and there's plenty of other ways. So Britain, of course, even more so after Brexit, but for a long time, most of Europe, most of the rest of the world follows orders, not China, that's the China threat. If you look at the China threat, it's at the Chinese border, it's not at the US border. China's eastern coast is surrounded by US bases with nuclear-armed missiles aimed at China. There's nothing like that in the Caribbean or off the coast of California. The South China Sea, which is contested, is portrayed as a freedom of navigation issue when the West sends you know, naval armadas there. It has nothing to do with freedom of navigation, which has not been threatened in the least. It has to do with a technical problem, which is certainly subject to negotiations problem, an ambiguous statement in the law of the sea, 1982 law of the sea, which incidentally the United States hasn't ratified. It's the only maritime country to refuse to ratify it. Nevertheless, it claims prerogatives under it. The law of the sea established what are called exclusive economic zones, 200 miles offshore for every maritime state. And the question is, what activities are permitted inside the EEZs? Specifically, are military and intelligence activities permitted there? China says no. India says no. In fact, India recently vigorously protested US military actions inside its economic and exclusive zone. United States says yes. Okay, That's the technical issue. The law of the sea is not totally precise on this. It says no threat or use of force. Lawyers can argue about what that means. That's obviously something for diplomacy and negotiations, not for provocative actions which raise tension. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the issue. That's the mm-hmm. China threat. But part of the pivot to Asia to confront the so-called China threat is closer relations with India. Major mm-hmm. is the major state outside of China. Uh, Modi can do whatever he wants. He can destroy Indian democracy, which he's doing. Major attack on secular democracy. He can launch—it's not quite Gujarat, but crusades against Muslims in all sorts of ways. Uh, deprive them of citizenship with the. Mm-hmm citizenship law against alleged illegal immigrants, uh, take over Kashmir, expanding sharply Indian repression in Kashmir, pretty much anything he likes as long as he follows orders. That's the way the mafia runs. Uh, Take Saudi Arabia, one of the most repressive violent states in the world. Has it ever mattered? Doesn't matter. They have the oil, they do what we say.
2: It's, it's interesting, you mentioned the 800 military bases that the US has all over the world. China, as far as I know, has just one military base. And not only that, for every dollar that America spends on renewable energy, China is spending three, which, according to the UN, makes it the leading investor in renewables. And I want to ask about climate, I want to ask about the planet. In your book with, with Robert Pollin, Climate Crisis and the Green New Deal, you detail the urgent action that's required of human life is to be sustained on the planet. And you talk about the elimination of fossil fuels from our current gargantuan amounts, from what we are using to zero. About You talk about eliminating meat consumption. And my, my favorite suggestion that the book offers was jail time for CEOs who failed to meet their renewable energy targets. You know, every, every day we have more and more information about global heating. Just this week, the UN Climate Agency says that Africa's eastern glaciers will vanish in two decades, just two decades. And that will put 118 million people in the continent of Africa alone at risk of drought, floods, and extreme heat. And I'm part, I think like a lot of people, I'm part of an environmental action collective. And one of the questions we struggle with all the time is how to best frame the climate crisis in order to nurture urgent collective action rather than apathy. Because we all seem to have the same information, but there doesn't seem to be any action. How how do we do that? How do we nurture it?
0: Well, first of all, let's put the facts on the table. They're not really in dispute. Mm-hmm. We're approaching a precipice. A couple more steps towards it, we fall over it, we're done. It's terminal. Doesn't mean everybody's going to die right away. It just means we'll be passing tipping points, irreversible ones, and the world will be moving towards decades, maybe centuries of horror. Terror, destruction, indescribable. It'll be almost lucky not to be alive. doesn't mean it'll take time for the last remnants to have moved towards near extinction, maybe a long time, but it'll be essentially over. If you read the ExxonMobil playbook, they say, don't worry, we can keep pouring poisons into the atmosphere someday, Some technology will be devised which doesn't exist, uh, which will take the poisons out of the atmosphere. you want to hear it explicitly, just listen to Joe Manchin, the kingmaker in the US Congress. Cole Barron, the leading recipient in Congress of fossil fuel funding, his mantra is, no elimination, only innovation straight out of the ExxonMobil PR industry. Uh, Well, it's not unknown. Actually, every part of the Biden climate bill is either gone or will soon be gone. And it's not just the United States. On August 9th, the IPPC came out with its latest report, dire Report, bottom line is, uh, You've got to stop using fossil fuels right now, not tomorrow, right now, certain percentage, certain percentage every year, until finally you reach something like phasing out, pretty much phasing out fossil fuels by roughly mid-century. That's the lesson. Everybody understands it. What's the reaction? Increase fossil fuel production. Joe Biden, the day after the IPCPC report issued an appeal to OPEC to raise production, because gas prices in the United States are getting too high. It's bad for him. The European Union followed along immediately, all of them, calling on the producer states to increase production, because there's a fuel crisis. Uh, it's harming the economy. Well, two ways out of it. One is destroy... The possibility for life for your grandchildren, that's one possibility. The other possibility is move even more, much more rapidly, far more rapidly towards renewable energy to try to meet the IPPC uh, proposals. Which way was chosen? Unanimously, virtually unanimously. Well, it tells us something about our institutions and even about who we are. Okay uh, not it's not a pleasant lesson. Now it's not over. We don't have mm-hmm. to take the last steps towards the precipice. Mm-hmm. It's well known how to avoid not only avoid the crisis, but create a better world, much better world. There are detailed proposals by International Energy Agency that's a producer-based agency, detailed proposals, my co-author, Paul Pollan, a fine economist, has developed very explicit proposals pretty much along the same lines. Jeffrey Sachs, another major economist, on the same thing. There's a resolution in Congress put forth by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, came in on the Sanders wave and uh, senior editor, senior senator from... Massachusetts, Ed Markey's long been interested in environmental issues, so resolution, pretty much the same, details, different. It's all there. We know how to do it. Human intelligence has reached the point where it can solve the crisis. Mm -hmm. Human moral capacity has not, institutional Mm -hmm. structures block it, partly but not totally the institutional structures are neoliberal. The neoliberal version of capitalism, vicious class, one-sided class war, is a death warrant. Mm-hmm. It says you can't do anything except raise short-term profits for the very rich. Okay, that's the end.
2: I think we've got to turn to audience questions in a moment. So if you've got questions for Professor Chomsky, please put them into the Q&A. And before I get to them, I just want to ask one last question. I guess it's the same military, industrial, congressional complex that provides cover for Israel. And I was reading your book uh, with Ilan Pape on Palestine, and was surprised to see that in the 1940s, in the mid-1940s, you were a Zionist youth leader, but one in your words strongly opposed to the construction of a Jewish state on Palestinian land. And so I was wondering if you could just tell us briefly while we're waiting for the questions to come in, what other possibilities are there for Zionism? That was the first time I ever heard of a Zionist uh, leader opposed to taking Palestinian lands for a Jewish state. Uh,
0: There's a lot of propaganda on this. Mm -hmm. The Zionist movement itself, the World Zionist Movement, was never formally committed to a Jewish state until. 1942. And of course, that was a meeting in the United States. 1942, you didn't meet anywhere else. There was a meeting in 1942, Biltmore Hotel in New York, where for the first time, the Zionist movement stated its commitment to a Jewish state. But there were plenty of exceptions. I was a teenager, teenage activist, strongly involved in this topic. We were, this is the 1940s, it's not today. 1940s, it was quite realistic in the wake of the depression. Remember, the depression and the Second World War uh, evoked an international wave of dedication to radical transformation of the society. Radical democracy showed up in many forms. And first, the first task of the United States and Britain when they started to enter the continent, first in Italy then in France. Their first task was to destroy the anti-Nazi resistance, to undermine their efforts to establish cooperative worker-based institutions, this is particularly true in Northern Italy. This deeply offended the British Labour Party They didn't want to see anything like that. They wanted to restore the traditional order, including Nazi collaborators. And that is the first phase of the post-war era. But at that point, to be supportive of radical democracy was to be in line with most of the world's population. Well, to get back to Palestine, the groups that I was involved with were looking forward to a Cooperative Arab Jewish Commonwealth in Palestine based on Arab Jewish working class cooperation, which was not outlandish at the time. In fact, even the institutions of the Jewish settlement, Yeshuv, it was called, were basically cooperative, cooperative and worker based institutions in many ways. So building on that was not. Now it sounds crazy. That's today. We moved far to the right. But if you put yourself back in the feeling of that period before the sharp attack led by the United States and Britain, then more bringing back the traditional order, same in Japan, if you go back to that period, it was not strange. And that was part of the Zionist movement. So yes, I was a Zionist youth leader, strongly opposed to a Jewish state in favor of Jewish-Arab working-class cooperation to develop a cooperative commonwealth in Palestine as part of a world revolution.
2: I'm going to ask the first question, Professor Chomsky, um, because it seems to be something that's echoed in a lot of people's comments. So the question is, your analysis, Professor Chomsky, is indisputable, but the problem has always been how to overcome class dominance. Corbyn, and to some extent, Sanders, show that there is a way through, but both were defeated when they came close to power. What is the solution? And I think there must be 10 questions here, all asking, what is the solution?
0: I think the solution is pretty much to go back to the mentality of the general popular revulsion after the Capitalist crisis of the Great Depression and the vicious, destructive Second World War, a move towards the kind of radical democracy based on working class cooperation, takeover of enterprises, takeover of communities, move the many ways to move in that direction. And that mentality, I think, was correct. I basically agree with the business run. uh, US-British leadership, which recognized that this had to be stamped out by force. They were right, just as Reagan and Thatcher were right in saying, we've got to destroy the unions if we're going to carry out a major attack against working people in the middle class. That's correct. It's correct when the mafia godfather says, if there's a small storekeeper somewhere who's not paying his protection money... I don't care about the money, but we've got to go in and smash them up uh, because it might spread. That's called the domino theory. It's all correct. Uh, we have to recognize that the most committed Marxists in the world are the business classes. Dedicated Marxists understand the need for constant class war. Some um, are more extreme than others. United States happens to be extreme, but... Uh, Basically the same idea. And you can't allow anything to get out of control. It can spread. You wanna know why the United States has been torturing Cuba since Kennedy? One good thing about the United States, very good, is it's quite an open society. So we have much more access to internal government documents than any other country I know of. So we know, under Kennedy and Johnson, the State Department explained That the problem of Cuba is Castro's successful defiance, successful defiance of policies going back then 150 years to the Monroe Doctrine, which declared US intent to dominate the hemisphere. Couldn't do it then, Britain was too strong, but they realized that over time it would work. That was being defied. By Cuba successfully. That's the small storekeeper refusing to pay his protection money. You come down hard, doesn't matter if the entire world is against it, doesn't matter if there's no geostrategic purpose, just torture the people of Cuba, so maybe they'll overthrow their government, and we won't have this model of successful defiance. has nothing to do with repression in Cuba any more than it does in Saudi Arabia, anywhere else, India. It has to do with successful defiance, the China threat again.
2: I'm going to ask the next question, which I suspect the answer is no, but does a healthy version of capitalism exist?
0: I don't think so, because (laughs) I'm an old-fashioned classical liberal conservative who believes that subordination of a person to a master is an intolerable attack on human rights and dignity. That happens to be classical liberalism, long forgotten, including in the United States, incidentally. So Abraham Lincoln, who was basically a classical liberal, and his, at that time, Republican Party, part of their commitment was to eliminate what they called wage slavery, subordination to a master, intolerable. People have to be free. That was the much more importantly, that was the stand of the rapidly growing American labor movement in the late 19th century. Main slogan of the Knights of Labor was those who work in the mills should own them and manage them. The radical farmers from Texas, Oklahoma, the Midwest, huge movement of farmers, wanted to create what they called a cooperative commonwealth of farmers, where they would free themselves from the Northeastern bankers and market managers run things by themselves. And that keeps cropping up, the end of the Second World War was very largely a worldwide phenomenon. It can come about again. So from that point of view, there is no benign capitalism. First of all, there's no capitalism altogether, it's never existed. The business world would never tolerate capitalism, it would self-destruct too quickly. They need a powerful state to protect them, just as in the neoliberal period. So there's one or another variety of state capitalism everywhere, includes Russia, includes China. The, and the question is, what kind is it? Well, there are more benign finds, there are more kinds, there are more savage kinds. Neoliberal period has to be happens to be one of the more savage kinds previous period was less savage in the economy, plenty savage in other ways. And as far as the climate crisis is concerned, which is the main one we face, along with nuclear war, it's whatever we think about the existing institutions, we have to deal with the crisis within those institutions. There is just no choice simply because of timescale. The timescale for Serious modification of the institutions, which is a major commitment, is just too long. It's within a couple of a decade or two that we have to deal with the climate crisis or else we're past irreversible tipping points.
2: I don't know if this is answerable in the two minutes we have left, but you have a question here about BDS. And what actions can be taken in the West, realistically, that would have a proper impact for Palestinians?
0: Actually, that's one of the easier ones.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What, there's a, I mean, there is an overwhelming international consensus. It's been in place since the mid-70s in favor of what's called a two-state settlement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's, I don't like it, but I think it's the best of possible alternatives. Or maybe the least worse. That's been two-state
2: solution, isn't it? Oh, dead now.
0: It's not a solution. It's a settlement. It's uh, could be a step towards something further, but in the short term, that's the least worst outcome. Uh, what's it was on the table in the mid seventies? There were United Security Council resolutions in the mid seventies calling for two states on the international border with, I'm now quoting, guarantees for the existence of each state within secure and recognized borders, okay. mm-hmm. supported by the major Arab states, tacitly supported by the PLO, bitterly opposed by Israel, that was the Labour government, wouldn't even attend the session. Yitzhak Rabin, prime minister, said we will never negotiate with Palestinians, forget it. The United States vetoed the resolution. Well, I won't run through the rest of the record, but it's another long period, which is pretty much the same. So the this, this real question is, will the United States change its policy from strong support for Israeli expansion and illegal not even a question that it's all illegal, everyone recognizes that. World court, Israeli authorities, it's all understood. Illegal expansion into the territories, move towards some kind of two-state settlement. I think it's possible. If you look at public opinion in the United States, it's shifted dramatically. 10 or 20 years ago, just to give you my own experience, I used to have to have police protection. If I dared to talk about this on campuses, it's a big fuss these days about cancel culture, but that's a question of whose axe is gored. As long as what was canceled was the left, uh, pro Palestinians and others, then it was fine. Nobody paid attention. Now it's other people on the conservative right, so you got to worry about it. But and that's changed. A major change was the Israeli attacks on Gaza, they got so horrifying you just couldn't conceal them anymore. No matter how much the press tried to conceal them, government tried to conceal them, it got through. The mood changed. By now among liberal, more liberal Americans, especially younger people, including younger Jews, there's more support for Palestinians than for Israel. Support for Israel has moved to the far right, just as Israel itself has moved to the far right. Israel and India belong together a uh, good alliance. They're both far-right countries. And you look at the support for Israel in the United States, it's evangelicals who have their own theology, whatever that is. And uh, the military security sector closely allied to Israel, that's their comparative advantage. And uh, very reactionary white supremacist sectors that just don't want any non-whites around. Uh, That's unstable. Now, the government only very partially responds to public opinion, but organized, active public opinion can't be ignored, even in totalitarian states, certainly not in partial democracy. So that could be a change. I don't see any other hope for change.
2: Well, I'm afraid that our time together is up. I'm sorry to all those who have... So many questions for Professor Chomsky that we weren't able to get to. Thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you to the How To Academy for giving us the space for this conversation. And thank you so much, Professor Chomsky, for your writing, for your speaking, for your activism. It's been such a pleasure and a true honor to spend this time with you in conversation.
0: Thank you very much. My pleasure.
2: This week's
1: episode starred Noam Chomsky and was presented by Fatima Bhutto. It was produced by me and edited by John Doughty. Professor Chomsky's latest book, exploring many of the themes touched upon in this episode, is The Precipice, Neoliberalism, the Pandemic, and the Urgent Need for Radical Change. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us, review us, and subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. And do say hello if you see me at one of our upcoming live events in London. Until next time...